reminder, we're continuing today in our series, Kingdom Sexuality. It's a series where we're trying to address what is, what is God's design, what is God's outlook, what is God's ordained order for sex and for sexuality. And how, as we understand that, are we informed in our interactions with the culture around us. So to give you a brief update, we spent two Sundays just considering specifically looking at the book of Genesis and Song of Songs, God's design in sex and sexuality, its place within marriage. And we looked at God's design for marriage itself and, and how to understand divorce and remarriage from a biblical perspective. Going forward, we're going to look at specifically the whole idea of sexual immorality. What does that mean? How, how does God address that? And we'll finish with a two-part series, two-part sermon on the issue of homosexuality, which is obviously a, a significant hot-button topic in our culture today. If you're not aware of that, I don't know where you've been. Um, today, we're going to spend our time looking at the issue of singleness and what it looks like to be single and to understand the whole topic of sex and sexuality, because singles, like everyone else, are sexual beings. They have a gender, obviously, and they have sexual desires, just as everyone else, because these are, these are God-given desires. So what does it look like to understand the calling, the gift, the, the season of singleness in light of everything else that God teaches us on this topic? So with that, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It, it's in the middle now. We're looking, you probably have a little, little subtitle, a little heading above it that says Principles for Marriage. So Paul is teaching Corinth principles for marriage here. And there's sort of this, this dynamic that's going on. It's clear that word has gotten back to him about some teaching that's been going on in the church at Corinth. And there's these slogans that kind of appear throughout the book. So if you read through, through 1 Corinthians, you'll see these places where there's quotes. This isn't Paul quoting himself most of the time. It's most of the time Paul quoting the slogans of the Corinthian church that have gotten back to him, quoting them, and then addressing and teaching to those points. So here in the context of, of marriages, he's doing just that. And then suddenly in the midst of the discussion, in verse 6, he jumps off into a very significant, very important aside. And this is what he writes. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Now, as a concession not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, that is, a single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. Now, as we go this morning, we're going to dip into the context there and, and tease those verses out. These are verses that I think can be easy to misunderstand. These are verses that sometimes can be easy to try and brush aside and not deal with because you don't want to kind of take the brunt of them. And they can be times, I think, verses that are overextended and, and kind of make Paul's saying here harder than it actually is meant to be. But as we understand these, we do want to come to the topic and consider how do we understand sex and sexuality as it pertains to single individuals? The first thing I want us to look at here is that as singles, as Christian singles, there should be a posture, a desire to seek purity. Seek purity. I don't want to get stuck on the topic of sex as it relates to singles this morning, even though we're in a series called Kingdom Sexuality. That may sound strange, but I, I want to cast the net more broadly. I want to consider several aspects of what it looks like to live as a single Christian. 
how singles handle their sexual purity is only one aspect of what God would address to them in their singleness. But sexual purity is something to address. And it's a place to start. To be rather blunt about it, if you are a single person, God would instruct you in no uncertain terms to abstain from sex. That's God's calling and charge to you. Sex simply isn't something that you should be dabbling in or experimenting with. It's not designed for the single person. The temptation here, I think, is to turn our attention first to single men, right? Maybe where your minds started to run. And there's something to that impulse. But sadly, statistically, young single women face equal temptations. Have equal responsibilities to hear this today. It's a cultural climate that more strongly than ever encourages both single men and single women to experiment. To experiment as willingly as their counterparts and contemporaries will allow them to. Of course, the entire idea of experimenting involves the idea that it's safe, doesn't it? It sounds like something that's that's sort of controlled. It's it's got special parameters, right? You're I'm just experimenting. This is this isn't a dangerous thing. We get that sense. As we've seen in the past few weeks though, sex by God's will, according to his wisdom and his goodness to us, sex was designed for one context. Marriage between a man and a woman. When sex is pursued or approached outside of that context, God unequivocally throughout Scripture labels it as sin. It's rebellion against His will. And as sin, it has destructive consequences. Sadly, these consequences are often things we only realize after the fact. And sexual sin is no different in this regard. I had an acquaintance in college who, who didn't believe this to be the fact, to be, to be true. And she experimented. I think she thought it was a way of, of building intimacy with men and building relationships, but it led her down a series of, of multiple sexual relationships with other young men. Other men who had no intention of marrying her and she would only find out tragically after the fact and yet continued down that road. And now years later, by God's grace, she's married. But she would be the first to tell you she still carries the scars of all of those relationships. She bought into the lie that it was safe, that there weren't consequences. But now she knows firsthand it wasn't true. Notice how keenly aware Paul is of your station and your temptations as a single. Paul is aware the context is one where the Christian, the Corinthians and the Christians in Corinth have been asking questions. There's these slogans we mentioned in the introduction. One of them is this idea we see at the very beginning of chapter seven. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There's this kind of aesthetic thing going on in Corinth where they're acting like physical things are bad, spiritual things are good, so, so sex itself is bad. And, and Paul's addressing that in the midst of it. 
So, so he has this understanding of purity. Paul's answer shows he understands people have a desire for sex. We can have this picture of Paul, I think. Paul is like this, this happily single guy. He's like the ultimate vision of celibacy. Paul has no sexual desires. He just kind of skipped over puberty. There's nothing in here that shows us that from Paul. In fact, Paul's instructions show us that's not the case at all. Because he has self-control, in other words, because he's learned to control sexual desire for God's sake, he's able to remain single. That's the instruction he gives to singles, right? I wish you'd remain like me, but only if you have the self-control to do that. I realize not everyone has that. That's not Paul saying, I never have any desire. It's him saying those desires are there. They're real. I'm as much a man as anyone else. But for God's sake and the sake of what he's called me to, I've, I've set them aside. So Paul knows what it is to have those desires, to have those temptations as a single. He also knows that the call to remain single forever is not necessarily the case for everyone. So he says for those who feel the need, he encourages them, he frees them up, go and be married. Marriage is the, the right place for sexual expression to happen. And if you, you feel like you, you want to experience that and, and there's a strong sense in you that you can't experience the self-control Paul talks about, he, he says, go, do it. I, I'm not commanding you, he says at the beginning of our passage. This is a concession. From the rest of 1 Corinthians and Scripture, we know that the call for singles is to seek marriage in a way that honors both the institution of marriage and the God who instituted it. So for singles, whether they're single teenagers, single college students, single 30-somethings, single divorcees, single mothers, singles in relationships, singles because they are widowed or widowers, singles in whatever stage of life that you find yourself as a single, there's a call from Paul, from God, from all of Scripture to pursue, to pursue purity. To honor God with the way you live as a single. In the chapter immediately preceding today's text, Paul lays out in the most basic terms possible what Christians are called to. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee from sexual immorality. We'll look at sexual immorality in more detail next week. Today I want singles in our midst to consider these words. It's for all believers, no less so for singles. Flee from sexual immorality. Paul's idea isn't that you experiment with it. It's not that you, you flirt with it. It's not that you, you, you test the boundary, seeing just how far and how much can be experienced without suffering consequences. The command is to flee. It's probably helpful to think of this from the other side. All the things a single person could engage in sexually, a married person can do as well, obviously. A professor of my pastor's college, Dr. Michael Lawrence, he's now a pastor out west, he once noted, every physical activity short of sex has a specific name for a married couple. So, so all these activities a single person can engage in, a single a couple, they're the same ones a married couple can engage in, but you know what a married couple calls them? They call them foreplay. And I don't say that to be provocative. 
that, that's recognizing what those things are. Kissing, caressing, fondling, cuddling, those things that unmarried couples convince themselves are okay because they, quote, aren't sex. Married couples say, these are great because they're a part of sex and they lead to it. Dr. Lawrence gives a really helpful analogy. He says, foreplay is like an on-ramp to the freeway of sex. Foreplay is like an on-ramp to the freeway of sex. You don't slow down on the on-ramp. The whole purpose is to speed up, to accelerate, to merge smoothly into the traffic. And the on-ramp is definitely not designed for somebody to go in reverse. The purpose of the on-ramp is to get you onto the freeway, to do it safely. And the question Dr. Lawrence asks of single people that I would ask this morning is simple. If you're not married, what are you doing on the on-ramp? If you're not married, what are you doing on that on-ramp? Why are you accelerating? Even if you think you're accelerating slowly and cautiously. So I'm going to time it as I'm on this on-ramp that I'm actually, I'm not going to get on the freeway until marriage happens. I'm just going to get really far down it. That's not the right way to think about it. Why are you on the on-ramp? Closely tied to this idea that many Christian singles modify from our culture is this notion, this idea that as commitment increases, so too can and should physical intimacy. You shouldn't be physically intimate, sexually active with just anyone, but you know, as commitment increases, it's okay, it's acceptable, it's understandable that your intimacy is going to increase. What's not okay physically, sexually, the first time you meet someone, slowly changes. Our culture will tell you after the first date, or the fifth date, or a few months, or upon engagement. Now, to be sure, most Christian singles in relationships probably slow this progression down. In the culture around us, it might be we meet, we have the first date, and the curve goes really sharply. Christians can kind of convince themselves that, well, our, our curve is slower, so it's okay. We're, we're idling down the on-ramp. So we meet, becoming friends, hanging out in groups, start dating, start getting more serious, enjoying each other's time. Well, now we're talking about marriage. Now we're engaged. That's not God's vision for sexuality and the single. Biblically, there shouldn't be a gradual increase like that. It should be something like a race car going from 0 to 60 on the wedding night. I want to recognize here, many Christian singles don't have that history. Or to put it another way, they have a history. They've experimented. Some of them have, have engaged in sex. Some of them multiple times with multiple partners. Some might be doing it right now. The call to purity still stands for you. I, I, love, I love that passage Zach read during worship from Micah. He has cast our iniquities into the sea. He's a compassionate God. Though our sins are as scarlet, He washes us white as snow.
It's a promise. It's the Gospel making a promise to you. No matter what you have experienced in your past sexually as a single person, the blood of Christ, the redemption He offers at the cross, cleanses. It fundamentally removes guilt. It removes stains. So I would encourage you, whatever your past is, whatever your history is, embrace now the call to flee sexual immorality. But recognize at the same time, wherever you are as a single, with a checkered past, if we're going to use that phrase, without one, but, but feeling the temptations. We talked about this in our care group on Thursday. We're reading a book called Sex and Money by, by Paul Tripp. And he says, it doesn't work to think you're going to solve the issue of sex practiced in an unbiblical manner by constructing rules and regulations and parameters and boundaries. That doesn't conquer the human heart. I don't care how many firewalls you design, how great your, your Covenant Eyes program is on your computer or whatever else it might be, you can do all sorts of things to, to protect that stuff from getting in, but it's already in. It's in your heart. The point is, in the Gospel, God offers redemption. He offers a change of heart. Jeremiah 31 says, Gone are the days of old, now are the days when I write my law upon your hearts. I give you a new heart. I take your heart of stone. I replace it with a heart of flesh. I give you my spirit to empower obedience so that you can grow in holiness. More than that, to, to, to flee from sexual immorality, to pursue purity as you're called to as a single, you can't just focus on rules and boundaries and structures, whether you're a single or you're a parent trying to help your single navigate that. No, you have to have a counter set of affections and desires. Instead of seeking ultimate pleasure in physical things, seeking ultimate pleasure in Christ, in communion with Him. Singles are called to purity. Now stepping more broadly to the call of singleness, singles are called to have a single-minded devotion. You see what I did there? Single-minded Cheesy. 1 Corinthians 7. Later on in the chapter, we're looking at the context now. He says, I want, you to free, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. His thoughts are consumed with, how do I serve God? But the married man is anxious about worldly things. This isn't worldly in like the evil sense. It's worldly in like the understandable. There's stuff in his schedule because he's married i.e. how to please his wife. Verse 34, his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, our last point. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. I'm not commanding you. I'm not trying to guilt trip you into this. You don't have to do this. It might not be your gift. But I say this to you to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion in the Lord. To secure your undivided devotion in the Lord. That's a key phrase for understanding what God calls people to as singles. God's perspective on the season of singleness, no matter how long its duration, couldn't be clearer. Paul instructs us there is blessing available in a season of singleness or a lifetime of singleness. Why? Because to be single offers the unique opportunity 
to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. That is a gift. A season of life where there are fewer distractions. Now that's not a statement to denigrate marriage or parenting or to pretend that singles aren't busy. But it is to recognize that both marriage and parenting specifically require specific amounts of time and energy and resources. A husband and a wife should be burdened about their spouse. That's Paul's point, right? How do I please my spouse? How do I care for them? Their health, their relationship. Parents have ample responsibilities to attend to with their children. You should hear, you should hear my wife Hannah describe the process of going to the store with kids in tow. It's not like a process. It's like entering a war zone. You can survive without any sort of major injuries. Well, man, the Lord has been with you. If you survive and there have been no meltdowns and no crying kids and no like amazing opportunities to crucify fear of man in the checkout line while your kid is freaking out over that candy... Man, there is some sweet sanctification that just happened right there. We've been there. If you're not a parent, you've witnessed it. Before I was a parent, I witnessed it, and there was just like judgmental thoughts. Just like, what kind of parent are you? My kids will never do that. It's different. Our day yesterday... This was our day. It was filled with a baseball game, a birthday party, kids' laundries, nap times, a trip to the park, playing all sorts of games that neither of us wanted to play. Left, right, center, it sounds boring because it kind of is, but the kids love it. It's filled with games and and reading books and preparing snacks and, and breaking up constant squabbles because little sister has figured out how to constantly repeat what big brother says to annoy him. Oh, that wonderful game. And then when daddy says, Sadie, obey, she parrots back, Sadie, obey. (laughs) Wiping runny noses, changing diapers. And yesterday was a great day. We had so much fun. But it was packed and it was exhausting. Now I understand the single person may long for the day of such responsibilities. We have dear friends who would articulate that. But as a single, God's instruction is to embrace the current gift of single-minded devotion. To embrace the gift of undistracted attention to Christ Jesus. That's a challenge I would give to all single Christians. Does undivided devotion to the Lord describe your season or your lifetime of singleness? And I say that with all due sensitivity. Are you strategically taking advantage of the free time and the freedom of schedule to devote yourselves to communion with Christ and mission for Christ? Are you using the flexibility of your finances to give sacrificially? Guys, guess what? When you get married, your wife isn't going to be content to live on your buddy's couch. Like the finances are going to get different. So as a single, in your single-minded devotion to the Lord, are you thinking strategically about 
but how to live and steward your life and your time and your resources for God's glory because of the unique gift and freedom you have as a single. In fact, later, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, different gifts, for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as God wills. You have the gifts that you have according to God's wisdom and the bestowal, the allotment of His Spirit. Paul's point is that God sovereignly bestows these gifts. Even the gift of a season or a lifetime of singleness. Even a long season of singleness that the individual wishes had been drastically truncated. More than that, He gives these gracious gifts. You can actually properly think of them as gifts of gracious empowerment. That's what's kind of talking about, this charisma. These are gifts of gracious empowerment. These aren't Christmas presents. No, these, are, these are gifts with the grace of God empowering them to be deployed for the common good. In other words, God is giving these gifts so that we would use them to serve the body, to serve each other. We're installing deacons not so that they'll teach and lead and bear authority. That's the calling of elders. We're installing deacons because they've shown themselves to be champion servants. And so we want to officially deploy them to the church. Serve God's people. Serve the common good. Serve these care groups in the building of fellowship and community. Iron sharpening iron that people might grow. They might increase in holiness and bear the image more fully of their Savior. Go and deploy your gifts in leading the children's ministry, in leading women's ministry. But use them for the common good. Use them for this local church. So again, singles, are you embracing your sovereignly bestowed current gift of single-minded devotion in service to the church? Two examples come to mind for me when I think of this. I mean, it was just like, which one should I use? And I'm like, I'm going to use both of them because I can't imagine not using one or the other. The one is Caleb. We're going to send him off to Bolivia. Part of the reason I feel confidence in sending Caleb to Bolivia to work in overseas missions is because there's been a consistent refrain in his life as a single man of his desire to serve. I had these amazing conversations. We were in Invest, our discipleship, kind of our theology discipleship group, where we would get together twice a month and just, just discuss theology and think together and, and seek to be shaped by God's Word. And I just, man, so he, he works at Garmin. Man, do you go to Taco John's a lot? In my world, that's a really great place to go. I love Taco John's. Every time we go up to Minnesota in Hannah's Town, we go to Taco John's. It's just so healthy. <laughs> well, at Garmin, Taco John's is right across the street. It's like, how tempting. I'd be like, Caleb, do you go to Taco John's a lot? Actually, I've never been. <laughs> What? What is wrong with you? You're undiscerning. I can't send you to the mission field. No, he told me, he said, you know, I try to be really intentional to, to bring a lunch with me just because I can save money that way. 
This is a guy who's, who's working at Garmin. He's got a white-collar job. He could be supporting a family on this income. He's just a single man, and he's strategically selling a car to buy, to buy a rust bucket so he can decrease costs. He's intentionally packing lunches and not going out to eat with all of his other single Garmin colleagues because Taco John's is right there with, with Taco Tuesday and Potato Olays. If you've never had them, they're amazing. They really are. He, he's saying, I'm avoiding those things. Why? Well, I, I want to I pay down my debt. I want to give generously, and I want to prepare myself to be deployed. These speakers are up here because Caleb, as a single guy, was willing to give tons of time in his week. This wall is up here because Caleb, as a single guy, came and helped to construct it. Same thing with this stage. I have a unique season of undivided attention and devotion to the Lord. And I think it's skip. Years. It's really easy as a single person. Like when you have kids, right? You have to get up earlier than you probably want to on a Sunday morning to get ready for church. And you have to get up earlier than you should have to because there is going to be chaos. Chaos will reign in your house. Things that never happen other days of the week will happen on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's going to happen. so easy for a single person to sit there and think, I don't have that problem. I roll out of bed about 9.15, 9.20. Don't even need a shower today. I'm going to hit the snooze again. And then they come and they show up right before worship because it's great to be single, man. Now, Skip, for years, decades even before Providence, undivided devotion to the Lord, using my gift for the common good. I'm getting up early on Sunday. A guy with, with chronic back problems. I've seen him up here. This isn't to be awkward about it, but <laughs> sweating because his back is in so much pain. He wants to serve the body, playing worship for us. I think Zach doing the same thing recently. These singles serving us. Some of the young single women who, who are now serving in youth ministry because they, they have a desire to disciple the young women in this church. Oh, what a great perspective to have on your season, the gift of singleness. Jesus makes the calling even more radical. He says in Matthew 19.12 that some will choose to become eunuchs, quote, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't need to be taken any more literally than the call to gouge out one's eye. Jesus is speaking metaphorically, but his point is there are some who, like Paul, will receive the gift of singleness not just as a season, but as a lifelong calling. Not because they don't have the same desires of everybody else, but because they want to be undivided for their entire life in service and devotion to the Lord. I really think this and mean this. I think every believer should wrestle with the question, every single believer, of whether they are called to remain single. You have to at least entertain the question. I think that's Paul's charge here. Not saying you're called to it or that you have to do it, but you have to at least consider it. In the same way, I'd argue every believer should at least pray and wrestle with, might you be called to vocational missionary work? 
Might you be called to go somewhere for the sake of the gospel? Go to West Africa and, and endanger your life serving those afflicted with Ebola to bear witness to your hope and faith in the gospel? I think this is similar. Paul doesn't command anyone to be like him, but he does wish it. The New Testament views lifelong singleness as a unique gift. Not everybody, not even many, receive it. But I think singles of all stripes should consider it. I considered it for like a year and a half in college. Might I be called to singleness? I considered it because there was a challenge I received from my pastor. It wasn't a weird thing to do, even though the culture would think it's weird. It was a responsible thing to do. Considering God's Word. Don't pursue singleness. And I want to be a corrective here to some of the things I think that culture can spill over into the church where people... There's some who are single and they long to be married. We're going to touch on that in a second. There's some people who are single and it's like, I don't feel called to single. I just like being single. Don't pursue singleness so you can go snowboarding at the drop of a hat. So you can go backpacking around the world for two years on the cheap. I saw some of those people in Bolivia. I don't know if they'd bathed in the last two months, but they didn't have a care in the world. They don't have any responsibilities. Don't avoid marriage because you're afraid of responsibility or you're commitment phobic. Embrace singleness as a unique gift that allows you to put the entanglements of marriage off to the side in order to embrace a radical devotion to Christ, a radical devotion to His kingdom, and a radical service of His bride. If you're single, be single-minded in your devotion. It's the gift that God has given you. Embrace its blessing. But there are also those who are single and waiting. I don't mean waiting in the passive sense. Often they are very actively, earnestly chomping at the bit waiting. For most people, they don't feel a call to a lifetime of singleness. So what does it look like to be single and waiting for marriage? How should a single person go about processing the current, their current God-ordained state as a single with an equal God-ordained longing to be married? It's a tricky tension, right? We saw at the beginning of this series, the desire to be married is a very good desire. It was God's idea in the garden. On the other hand, He also teaches us in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I want to be careful here. It can be really insensitive to tell a single person who longs for marriage, you just need to learn contentment. You would be so much happier if you were just content. I don't mean to stick the dagger of contentment into your heart today. And I think we need to recognize we can make contentment into some sort of works righteousness for a single if you just finally learn contentment, then God, I'm sure, will bring that husband you've been waiting for. Where do we see that in the Gospel? God's holding back a lot of really good things because you haven't earned them yet. No, the Gospel is God's open hand. So I want to tread carefully here. 
But I, I want to be intentional as well. Contentment isn't going to guarantee marriage. That's not what I'm saying. But we do need to recognize there's a place for both longing, praying diligently, beseeching the Lord, longing for marriage. But there's also a place for contentment and waiting. The Lord wants us to be content, specifically content with Christ and with His gifts. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I guarantee you one of those situations is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. I have learned to be content with not experiencing sex as a married man. I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am. It's something that Paul learned. Again, he's not this like inherently celibate man with no desires. He had to learn contentment. So if you're single and you desire so strongly to be married that at times it seems to just overwhelm you, maybe it seems to, to sap your joy in life. I want to be happy, but I want to be married. And it is so hard that I'm not. You don't understand how long I've waited. You don't understand how many of my friends' weddings I've had to go to. And, and paste on the smile. I want to be happy for them at the wedding, but my heart is breaking because I want to be married. It's hard. If that seems to overwhelm you, to sap your joy, to leave you dissatisfied with being single, I want to tell you, there is hope and grace to learn contentment. And learning contentment doesn't mean you don't long to be married. Paul says this about contentment. He says there is joy in it. And he says that because of what he said earlier in Philippians. In Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Contentment isn't just this weird state of, of neutral desires. I'm content because I don't want anything. I've learned not to desire anything from life, and so I am fully content. No, not at all. Paul says, I desire things. I want to go to Spain. I want to see the gospel advance. I, I want to do these things. I want to do great things for the Lord. But above all else, I want to know Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want to commune with Jesus. I want to be conformed to the image of my Savior. And that takes precedence above everything else. Strip everything else away from me. It's rubbish compared to knowing and being known by Jesus. That's Paul's point. Seek contentment because you're seeking to see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And then realize this. Paul learned contentment, but this amazing sense of contentment didn't make him idle or passive. Paul is like the least idle person you read about in the New Testament. The dude is going places. It's not one missionary journey. It's not two. It's, it's all these missionary journeys across this entire world. It's like, to, to equate what Paul's doing in these missionary journeys, it's like one journey for us has got to be like five trips around the globe. He's doing incredible things. He's completely content, but never idle. Completely satisfied in Christ, but never passive. Paul's driven by goals. Some that he would never achieve because it was God's will that he wouldn't. But he's still driven by those goals. I think the same can be equally true of being single. Yet waiting, longing, dreaming, praying for marriage. 
Sure, Paul's wish is that many would consider singleness as a lifelong calling, but he's very careful not to imply a lot of you are going to have this gift. In fact, he tells people, if you don't have the gift, get married. Now, that command, get married, boy, that even in and of itself can almost seem insensitive, right? I know. I want to be married. But the command itself implies it's okay to long for it. It's okay to work towards it. So what might that look like? This isn't an exhaustive list, but here are some thoughts I think should be considered for singles who are in that stage of waiting. First, you recognize longing is okay. It's a God-ordained recognition that you desire the gift of marriage. So longing is okay, but obsessing is not. Don't let the good desire for marriage grow into an idolatrous obsession that clouds out everything else. There are bound to be days where it is hard being in this stage when you desire so strongly to be in another. If you find yourself, though, in a place where you're incapable of joy in life because you're single, you've probably crossed over into obsession. Likewise, if you've become bitter in your singleness, your longing has probably developed beyond a healthy desire and into a ruling one. Second, redeem the time for Christ and His kingdom. We've already touched on this. I don't don't want to belabor it. But no matter your duration of the season of your singleness, use it to exploit it for the full devotion and pursuit of Christ. Third, pray. Pray. It's so simple, we often forget its importance. But pray. Pray for your joy in Christ as you wait. Pray that God would give you what Paul learned and experienced in Philippians. Saturate yourself in Philippians and make it your prayer and cry, God, give me this perspective as I long and wait. Pray for God's grace in waiting. Pray that God would grant you the gift of marriage. It's not long, it's not long to pray for that. Ask, seek, knock, it will be given to you. Ask for it. Pray for it. And pray for your potential future spouse. Fourth, most significantly maybe, pursue Christian maturity. While you're waiting, pursue Christian maturity. I don't know if the mindset to prepare for marriage is actually helpful. If a person embraces that and then finds themselves still later, still single much later in life, can't you kind of be tempted to think, well, that was a waste. 5, 10, 20, 30, my whole life preparing for marriage and it never happened. Instead, pursue maturity. God calls you to do it. Pursue maturity, pursue holiness, pursue godliness. If single men and single women pursue hard after maturity, the bonus that they're going to get is preparation for marriage should God give the gift. That is a short, albeit incomplete list of how to walk in singleness while longing for marriage. Long for it. Pursue it. Don't be idle. And let Christ reign as your supreme joy. Another list I'd offer to the wider church. How to care for singles. So some of you have been maybe spacing out because you're not single anymore. Well, I would give the caution, you don't know that you're going to be that way forever. 
there are people here who have been married for years, but now they've been single for years. They've been widowed, or they're a widower, or divorce entered the picture. But to the wider church, how to care for singles. Affirm them in the difficulty of hope being deferred. It's hard. We've had dear friends, some of our closest friends, multiple conversations, multiple instances of tears just flowing. One of those friends we talked to said, you know, I've cried and I've prayed with women about the struggles of infertility. I have wept with them. And now, five years later, they have several children. And I'm so happy for them, but I'm still single. And because I'm still single and godly about my pursuit of it, I'm also still without children. And more than that, a lot of them haven't reciprocated the care. Oh, church, don't let us be like that. It's acceptable in the church to mourn for infertility, and people see that as something that is long-suffering. Right? But we should think the same thing about singleness for the person longing for marriage. Be sensitive to what it's like to live with a hope deferred. Invite singles over. This is the second one, how to care for singles. Invite singles over into your home. We shouldn't like relegate singles to like their own little herd. Like You're kind of over here and you mix with each other, but this over here is, you got to get to this stage to be a part of this. No, invite them over for dinner. Include and involve them in hospitality. Go and hang out with them. Husbands, free your wives to hang out with with single friends and and vice versa. But don't think it only has to be that. Invite them over into your home. Some of our single friends have said, we always kind of get this sense, it's like we have to go out just with the wife. We love just being with the family. We we long for families. It's, It's enjoyable to be with families. Don't overlook singles in this way. On the flip side, singles pursue fellowship. And not just with other singles, with the body. Third thing, recognize the difficulty often doesn't diminish with time. In fact, the temptations to bitterness and despair or lack of trust in God's sovereign plan usually just increase. Similar ways with infertility. Your compassion should increase the longer one walks in that state. As a community, I think this is an important one, don't hold marriage as the utopian ideal. Or treat the gift or seasons of singleness as a, a sub-ideal stage to be endured for as long as you're in that holding pattern. Subtle things that communicate to a single person, you don't really have a place in this body. Or you have a place, but it's definitely kind of sort of on the margins. That subtle, sometimes not so subtle pressure on singles are you in a relationship? Have you found a guy yet? Constantly coming. That, that's undue pressure on single people. Be sensitive to it. Be sensitive that it communicates this sense that you really shouldn't be content with where you're at. I hope you realize that. You, you need to move beyond this. It doesn't serve them. Realize this is helpful. What encourages and serves one single might not encourage another. 
there might be some singles who would just say, I, I have a hard time gathering with your whole family because I want it so hard and so, so deeply. And others might say, don't assume I don't want you. I, I so want that. Get to know them. Know how to encourage them. And know that a single's needs might change significantly with time and age. What served a single at 25 might not serve her at 45. Might not serve him at 55. Promote the ideals of biblical manhood and womanhood in a way that encourages and instructs a single person of how they embrace those roles as singles. In other words, if our discipling of men only ever involves teaching them how to lead wives and lead families, we're not really teaching a full understanding of biblical manhood. If our instruction of women in biblical womanhood is only, this is what it means to to love and follow and support and respect your husband. We're not doing a, a sufficient job of teaching what it means to be a biblical woman and all the Bible calls them to be. Something tells me, when you think about the guy writing our letter today, something tells me Paul was a pretty sterling example of biblical manhood. And he never got married. That tells us something about how we should understand those topics. Here's another one for the church. Pursue the counsel of singles. Pursue their counsel. This is how you don't treat them like they're in a a sub-ideal stage. You pursue their counsel, even in areas like marriage and parenting. My hope is that our counsel to one another is wise, not primarily because it's based on experience, but because it's based on God's Word and it's soaked with Scripture. And vice versa. Singles, don't fall into the temptation of thinking that a married person can't encourage you, can't advise you, maybe even can't rebuke you, because they just don't understand. Paul is a Jewish, free, single man, and he has wise counsel for Gentile enslaved married women. Not because of shared experience, but because of the sufficiency of God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Last two here. Celebrate marriage. Being sensitive not to pressure and idealize or idolize marriage doesn't mean we don't hold it in high esteem. And then celebrate singleness. Whether it's the seasonal or lifelong variety, the church has to have a category for this gift and a category for the blessing it brings to the body. In conclusion, singles, my hope is that you would be satisfied. That you would be single and satisfied. Satisfied for as long as you're single. Not necessarily satisfaction in the stage itself, but a pronounced and abiding satisfaction in the sufficiency of Christ for you. Embrace the uniquely sanctifying effects of singleness. There's a misnomer that gets seemingly constant airplay in Christian circles. A couple gets married and they parrot, man, marriage is a sin exposer. You heard that one? The idea is that there's nothing quite so sanctifying as getting married. And then they have a child and they correct themselves. We thought marriage was serious business, but there is nothing more sanctifying than parenthood. This is dangerous and wrongheaded. And I've been guilty of saying it. That's not a right way to think about sanctification. 
Are marriage and parenting sanctifying? Yes, absolutely. Are they more so than singleness? Absolutely, not inherently so. To claim that would be to deny God's goodness and His sovereignty. Those quotes are essentially telling a single person, you know Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the love of those those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28, that awesome verse, it kind of doesn't apply to you in your stage because my stage is more sanctifying than your stage. It's a hard thing. And it's not true. It's not true. This is a, a good gift sovereignly given by God to conform them to the image of His Son. There are joys and trials unique to every season and every station in life. As a single person, you bear compelling witness to the world in the way you embrace the highs and the lows, the blessings and the challenges of this season for God's glory. What we see from Paul and Jesus in 1 Corinthians and the Gospels is that the nature of the kingdom is one in which no good thing, no good thing is withheld from the citizens of that kingdom. The promise to those in singleness is that God promises great blessings to you in the midst of this stage. Blessings that come in varied forms, to be sure. Some obvious, others hidden deep in the mysterious providence of God. But singleness is a gift, whether temporary or permanent. If you're single, pursue a posture of trust in God's, pro- in God's promises. Conclude with Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Not anything you desire, but the desires of your heart because you're delighting yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you Himself. Lord, whatever stage we are in, we want to delight ourselves in You. We want our hearts to be filled with the view of Your glory. We want our desires to constantly culminate in Your Son. We want to learn contentment. We want to learn joy and satisfaction in Jesus. We want to learn to trust You even when we can't see what Your purposes are. To trust even when we don't know why things are happening or for as long as they're happening. God, we want to know through the testimony of Your Word and the confirmation of Your Spirit that Your promises are true and that You withhold no good thing from those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray this in His name.